African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. A very good morning to you and welcome to another interactive installment of African Dialogue. You tuned into Channel Africa, your gateway to Africa and the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Asanda Matzaunyane. I'm in for Benjamin today and we're currently on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. On the program today, we'll look at the resentencing of South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius by High Court Judge Tokozile Masipa. Before we get to that topic, though, let's get the news. Here's Anne Musa. In the headlines, the AU summit opens with call for solidarity and unity. At least 10 soldiers killed in Somalia when Al-Shabaab Islamist militants rammed a car packed with explosives into an army base and more arrests expected after four South Africans were nabbed following the attempt to fly to Syria.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. The 27th African Union Summit has opened in Kigali, Rwanda, with the call for solidarity, unity and the spirit of pan-Africanism among African nations to address issues affecting the continent under the theme African Year of Human Rights with particular focus on the rights of women. The summit will run up to the 18th of July. The theme for this year is timely as some parts of the continent are embroiled in civil strife which has led to abuse of human rights, especially for women, children and loss of lives. In another development, the African Union has announced that opposition groups in the Democratic Republic of Congo have recognized the need to launch a national dialogue before the end of July. The parties have also maintained to focus on the conditions to launch the national dialogue. The AU meeting took place within the framework of Partnership for Peace and Security in Africa. It also called on all the stakeholders in the dialogue to create a conducive environment for the holding of the national dialogue. The Institute for Security Studies has done an analysis for the upcoming African Union elections to be held in Kigali, Rwanda during the AU summit. Analysts say there is a possibility of the election being postponed as the current candidates do not seem to offer great competition. Dr. Nkosuzana Tlamini Zuma is ending her term as the chair of the AU after serving for four years. Yan Badzigai is from the Institute of Security Studies in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. You have three scenarios. The first scenario, there will be an election and the commission will be elected. The second scenario is the fact that you will have an election, but you will have a lockdown. Like no candidate for the chairperson candidate, no, no candidate for the chairperson seat will be able to gain the two-third majority. Then the election will be postponed. And you have another a third scenario, which will be that uh, when the head of state will gather in uh, Kigali, and then we say, okay, we see that there is no consensus. Let's just postpone. At least 10 soldiers have been killed in Somalia when Al-Shabaab Islamist militants rammed a car packed with explosives into an army base southwest of the capital. And Al-Shabaab spokesperson has refuted the numbers, saying 30 soldiers were killed. And finally, South Africa's Directorate for Priority Crime Investigation, known as the Hawks, says more arrests are imminent after four South Africans were nabbed following their attempt to fly to Syria. The Hawks spokesperson, Hangwani Mulahoudzi, says the four are appearing in various magistrates' courts to face charges related to terrorism. He says the three men and one woman were stopped from flying to Syria and the airline was informed the arrests were made on Saturday. Mulahoudzi says the search is on for more suspects. We are working in terms of making sure that we look uh, into these possibilities of uh, terrorist tents uh, basing themselves in the country. So this is one of the first. There are others that we are still looking at, uh, but we are happy with the outcome so far. We have arrested four suspects. Um, this follows an investigation that kicked started in 2015. Recapping the top stories, the AU summit opens with calls for solidarity and unity. At least 10 soldiers killed in Somalia when Al-Shabaab Islamist militants rammed a car packed with explosives into an army base and more arrests expected after four South Africans were nabbed following their attempts to fly to Syria. Nelson Mandela has been a lawyer, 
and the freedom fighter, a political prisoner, peacemaker, and president, a healer of nations, and a mentor to generations of leaders and people from all walks of life throughout the world. Nelson Mandela gave 67 years of his life to bring change to the people of South Africa. Our gift to him can and must be to change our world for the better. I joined the Nelson Mandela Foundation in urging each and every one of us to perform 67 minutes of public service on Nelson Mandela International Day. Take action, inspire change, make every day a Mandela Day. In 2009, the United Nations declared the 18th of July as Nelson Mandela Day. This is in recognition of the former South African state president's contribution to the culture and peace and freedom for all. Channel Africa, celebrating Mandela Month. Well, this is African Dialogue that you're listening to here on Channel Africa. Remember, we come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. Thanks very much to Anne there as well for the news update. My name is Asanda Matzaunyani. I'm in for Benjamin today. You're also welcome to interact with us via Twitter. Our handle is at Channel Africa. Facebook, you can simply SMS your views to plus two seven. Seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. If you want to email us, do so. Our email address is info at channelafrica.org. And if you're listening to us via DSTV, we are on channel 802. Now, to the business of the day. South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius spent his first week in prison after he was sentenced to six years in jail by High Court Judge Togozile Masipa for the murder of his girlfriend, Rieva Stienkamp. In handing out the verdict, the judge said she found compelling and substantial circumstances that persuaded her to deviate from the minimum sentence of 15 years imprisonment. Following the sentence, the Paralympian said he would not appeal the six-year sentence. To talk to us about this, we are joined on in the line now by Karen Van Eck, who is a legal expert. Good morning to you, Karen. Good morning. Uh, the other guest we have is Ulrich Rue, who is a defense and litigation lawyer for BDK Attorneys. Good morning to you, Ulrich. Hi, good morning. Thanks to the both of you for making time to chat to us. And the first question maybe uh, can be to you, Karen. We, what we, are, we want to understand if the six years is enough. Is it enough? That's a a very controversial question in the sense that there's obviously been a lot of comments made um, by various people. Um, uh, There's, from the beginning, been two camps, the one, uh, you know, champing for Oscar and the one um, that has said that he was guilty from the beginning. And um, it seems that these these two camps are continuing and the the one would say that it's definitely not enough um, for a person to be uh, sentenced for six years for murder. And then the other one would say, well, you know, this was a fair and reasonable sentence in light of, every, of all the circumstances. So I think it, it depends from which side you're looking at. But um, my personal opinion is that six years is a very lenient sentence for murder. Well, Rick, do you think that it's a fair and just sentence? Well, I, that's exactly what I wanted to say. Now, it's not whether it's enough, whether it's a fair and just sentence. And um, yes, he was convicted of of murder, but remember that he was convicted of murder, Dallas eventually, so it's murder with indirect intent. 
Um, it, of course, carries a minimum sentence of 15 years imprisonment mm-hmm. unless the convicted person can show substantial and compelling circumstances as to why the court should deviate from that sentence. Now, you know, the, the, the important finding which the Supreme Court of Appeal made when the matter was taken on appeal is that Oscar Pistorius never had direct intent to kill not only Rivas Tientum, but whoever was behind that door, that um, he thought it was an intruder, that he made a mistake, and uh, that his actions led to the death of another person. And, and this is a very important point. It's a far cry from someone who decides that he's going to shoot and kill someone. He takes out his firearm, he loads the firearm, and he then does shoot and kill that person. And uh, I think this this must be taken into consideration, and it was also one of the the factors which Judge Masipa pointed out as to why she is deviating from the minimum sentence. And, you know, together with all the other factors she needed to consider, like his personal circumstances, the seriousness of the offense and the the interests of society. And also then to to blend that with uh, a a measure of mercy uh, as well as taking into account the factors of retribution punishment and rehabilitation. And um, the reason why I'm mentioning all of this is just to illustrate how difficult sentencing is, but also, in my opinion, if you take all of that into consideration, and most most importantly, the fact that he was convicted of murder, dolus eventualis, with indirect intent, I do think a fair sentence. The prescribed minimum sentence for murder is 15 years, and taking into consideration all what you've mentioned, uh, also the fact that he, he didn't have direct intent to kill, and that's what the judge said. Karen, why did Oscar not even get half of that uh, prescription? Uh, Ulrich does say that sentencing is quite a difficult thing, but not even seven years at this stage is even less than that. I think what we must just um, remember is that he has already spent... Um, almost a year behind, um, incarcerated, and then um, there was another 10 months that he has spent under house arrest. So if we add that up, it's definitely more than six years. We get to almost eight years. Um, But as Ulrich has already mentioned, there's so many factors that's taken into consideration. And um, what what Judge Masipa just here thought that there was enough mitigating factors um, and there was enough reasons why in this particular matter, um, with Oscar Pistorius and his personal circumstances, why she should deviate from this. Um, so, you know, you have to consider each and every matter on its own, but then you also have to look at the, the, the person that is sitting in front of her. And she has taken all of those factors into consideration when she made this decision. But we, we must not lose sight of the fact that, he, that it's in actual fact more than six years. It's now just effective six years going forward. Ulrich, you mentioned dollars eventualis. Can you break this down for somebody who doesn't understand the legal terminology? What is it all about? Well, I think uh, the whole of South Africa and a large part of the world became experts on the principle of dollars eventualis. And it was quite a, at the end of the day, there was a lot of confusion about it. But it is in actual fact quite simple and, and straightforward. It is a a form of intent and it is defined as indirect intent. Now, what the definition says is that if a person acts in a certain way and he knows that his actions could lead to the death of another person, but he reconciles himself with that fact and still acts accordingly, 
then he has indirect intent, and that is dolus eventualis. Uh, and, and that is what the court found, the Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein, is that he should have known, um, even if he thought there was an intruder in the bathroom, his life at that point was not in danger. It was someone who he thought had broken in and who was locked inside a, a, a bathroom cubicle, and that he should have known by firing those four shots into the door that he could kill someone unlawfully, because of the fact that his life was not in danger, and that thus he had the indirect intent to kill that person because he reconciled himself with that fact and still acted accordingly. At what stage does Dolus Eventualis get taken into uh, consideration of the case? Well, definitely uh, with the sentencing, um, you know, that is is what I I stated earlier. It's It's a big consideration to take into account because of the fact that the person did not have direct intent um you know there's there's a lot of case law regarding sentencing and regarding murder and regarding um you know similar offenses which which oscar was also convicted of and uh, there's an old case i don't want to bore everyone with all the details but it's it's a case called uh, state versus hartman and it was uh, it, it went uh, about a son who injected his father with morphine um, because he wanted to, to kill him because his father was in pain and suffering. And he was convicted of murder with direct intent because it was clear that he wanted to kill his father. But he was sentenced to one day imprisonment. And the reason why I mention that is, uh, especially as Corin pointed out now, the personal circumstances of each case must be considered as well as the person who uh, who has been convicted. And each case is is um, unique in its, you know, in in the in the specific facts related to that case, and that is why I say, you know, in my opinion, there's obviously been a lot of public outcry regarding the sentence, and people feel that it's too too lenient. But we must also not lose sight of the fact that the court is not there to please the public sentiment and the public opinion. The, the court is not a uh, there to be popular. You know, the court is there to serve the public interest. And after having taken into consideration all of the, the relevant facts in this matter and, and the personal circumstances of the accused person uh, or the convicted person, it, it does uh, amount to being a reasonable sentence, in my opinion. Okay, we're going to take a break now uh, and we'll be right back to discuss this further. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Always missing your favorite Channel Africa radio shows? Well, now you don't have to. We have a free catch-up service that allows you to listen to Channel Africa radio content from your cell phone, computer or tablet at your convenience. Visit www.channelafrica.co.za and click on programs for a list of your favorite shows. Select what you want to hear. Click on listen and enjoy Channel Africa radio. 
It's as easy as that. Channel Africa Radio, the voice of the African Renaissance. Welcome back to African Dialogue here on Channel Africa. 11.17 is our time, Central African. And we're talking today uh, about the resentencing of South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius by High Court Judge Togozile Masipa. My name is Asanda Mazzaunyani. Before the break, Karen, Ulrich mentioned that the court is not there necessarily to be, you know, to be sort of to consider every view or to try and be popular with the members of the public, but rather to serve a specific, uh, uh, specific, you know, case. But when it comes to the judge presiding over the case, do you think that this can be an emotionally involved situation? Does Judge Masipa, the judge presiding over the case, could she have been emotionally involved, Karen? We we cannot take um, away the fact that she's a human being. and and that is that is the the, the risk and a, a factor that's um, involved in every case that's in, in court. The person sitting there making the final decision and making the verdict and ultimately the sentence is a human being who has um, a background um, that we don't know about and um, who has certain references um, that when she sees or hears something. Um, and and that is unfortunately not something you you cannot put it in a um, in a neutral light all the time and just say, well, this person is not going to have any feelings towards this case. Um, so it's, it's impossible to say that she could not have had emotional feelings towards this, but that can be towards the victim as well as to, to the accused. Um, so it is true. We cannot take that away. But I don't think that in this particular matter that Judge Masipa was emotionally involved in this particular case. Um, I think that she, it, it was a very stressful case for her in the fact that she has been under a lot of scrutiny, much more than would have been on a normal day, um, day at the office where she would have presided over a murder case. So I think it was um, stressful in that sense. And because of that, I think she um, might have at some times appeared to be more emotional about the matter. But I think also that this extra stress um, even made sure that she uh, sit back a a bit more and and review the matter. And, I mean, this is more than just just what Judge Masipa thought. Um, uh, This went to the appeals court, and there were five other judges that also made a decision. And all of them are also human beings with background and with feelings and emotions with regards to um, certain matters in front of them. So at the end of the day, I think that, um, you know, with respect to Judge Masipa, I think she really um, was, uh, she went back, she sat back and, and she re- she reviewed all of this. And I think she um, she wasn't emotionally involved in this particular matter. But as far as a human being um, is concerned, she obviously had some feelings towards the facts that were put in front of her. And speaking about the fact that Judge Masipa was not the only one involved in coming up with the sentence, we know that she was being helped by two assessors. Could they have also weighed in on the six-year sentence, Ulrich? No, the assessors are not involved in the sentencing process at all. The assessors are only there to assist the judge in interpretation of the facts. So it was only Judge Masipa who handed down the sentence. Why was it important that before the resentencing, uh, Reva's father came to testify? Does this not jeopardize the neutrality of the bench? No, well, um, the, the, the three main considerations which need to be taken into account 
when reaching a, a just sentence by the court is the personal circumstances of the convicted person. Um, so in other words, Oscar Pistorius' um, uh, disability as well as his uh, all his personal circumstances which were placed on record. Then the the seriousness or the gravity of the offence, obviously a very serious offence um, in that he was convicted of murder. And then thirdly is the interest of society and uh, this is the reason why Harry Nell um, asked or, or brought Barry Steenkamp to testify in aggravation of sentence and that was in an attempt to show to the court what effect this crime had um, on the family and the immediate family but as well as on society as a whole and it's a it's a very important consideration which the t- court needs to take into account because when the court hands down a sentence, it should send out a clear message to society um, as to why a person should not act in the way that Oscar Pistorius did act. And uh, in order to to try and send out, out the sentence which not only takes the consideration of rehabilitation uh, into account but also of deterrence for future and would-be offenders, and and that is why uh, that that evidence was placed on record. Also in the verdict, uh, Karin, the judge said although the Steenkamps have lost a child, that they should also understand that Pistorius has lost his career. Is that a fair statement, to compare a career to a life of a human being? I I don't think um, the judge Masipa wanted to, um, by that, say that a career is as important as a life of a human being. I think she was more referring to the loss that a person has suffered in the sense to say that, well, you know what, Oscar Pistorius' career was um, very important to him. Some people might say it was was his all. Um, And she wanted to indicate that he has lost something very important to him as that the Bastien Kamp family lose something very important to them. So I don't think she wanted to really compare the two and just say, well, it's you know, the one is as important to the other. She just wanted to indicate that um, the result of this has been so far implicating. He has lost his his future in this particular career that he was um, very successful in. Um, but she also did not forget that part of this was a human life that has, has, has been lost. So I, I think it, it, it was sort of taken a bit out of um, the idea of what she wanted to convey to the public when she read out the statement. What's your view, Ulrich? Has the victim and her family taken second place in the sentencing? Um, no, I, I wouldn't, I'd say that's not a fair uh, comment to make. I think, importantly, when, when Barry Steenkamp testified, you know, it, it drove home the, the raw emotion and the effect that this crime has had uh, on the family for the first time. And you could, for the first time, see the effect that it had on him and his family, but also, and um, Judge Masipa pointed this out when she handed down the sentence, the fact that he confirmed that, that both him and his wife have forgiven Oscar Pistorius, um, you know, for, for, to, to, to try and um, deal with, with the loss of their daughter and also to rehabilitate themselves. And this is an important factor to consider because... Uh, as as uh, you correctly pointed out, you know, a, an innocent person lost their life, um, and it had a severe effect on the family um, of of that person. But also, Oscar Pistorius' life, as he knew it, is is over. You know, he will never 
be regarded as a as a, a normal member of society again. You know, even if he served his prison sentence, um, it will be near impossible for him to to be reintroduced into society. And and this will always hang over his head that he killed uh, an innocent person and he was convicted of a murder. So um, you know, the, as I said before, our, our case law states that you need to take his personal circumstances into account, and I think that she did that correctly. Karen, we saw Oscar being made to walk in court on his stomps. Why? What was the purpose of this? What was it supposed to prove? Well, initially in the trial, um, before the, the sentencing, they wanted to prove his vulnerability um, with regards to the possibility of which he said it was in, in that he shot in self-defense because he felt vulnerable and he couldn't run away. Um, the same thing happened now in the sentencing. They wanted to show his vulnerability. Um, is is he a person that can go to prison? Um, will he um, fit into the prison circumstances? Um, and, you know, not being held in the hospital wing, but in the normal wing, is that a possibility? And they wanted to actually show that he is so vulnerable without his um, prosthesis that it's it's that he would not be a good candidate to go to be incarcerated um, in the normal prison wing um, and so forth. So that it was again just to show his vulnerability to the court in a mitigating um, as a mitigating factor. The issue of Oscar's behaviour as well whilst in prison also came to the fore. Why hasn't that been a determinant that he might be a violent person generally? The, Judge Masika said that um, she she made mention of it. She said that. You know what? The fact that he was um, that he was aggravated on certain instances when while he was incarcerated doesn't mean that he's a violent person in general. Um, it just means that you know at that particular time he was aggravated, and she wanted to sort of indicate that it's normal behaviour that if something happens and you are um, aggravated by something that you are going that you might use your temper. But the way in which, which he loses his temper, that is obviously um, the, the question uh, with regards to his um, his violent nature, the one or the other way. And I don't think that um, they've proven that he's, that he's in general a violent person, but he might have a, a short temper when it comes to things like his health or getting medicine or um, getting the help that he needs um, while he's there. Okay, we're going to take another short break. And when we come back, I'd like us to look at, you know, what's going to be the future, the kind of precedence that this kind of case has set for the South African judicial system. But let's take a break and we'll come back to that after this. Change your game. Be the voice of young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. A program that promotes open discussion. Change your game. We bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem. Our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the African entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs, educates and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 1000 hours to 10.45 a.m. Central African time. And on Saturdays, 1300 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Welcome back to African Dialogue. My name is Asanda Mazzaunyane talking about the resentencing of South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius by High Court Judge Togozile Masipa. We're talking to Karen Van Eck and Ulrich Roo. Uh, has this created a major precedence in South African law, Ulrich, this case of Oscar Pistorius and Rueva Steenkamp? Yes, well, I think, um, you know, uh, all court cases decided upon develop our law on a daily basis and that is the beauty of the South African law uh, system is that the the law is not rigid in its application, it, it adapts on a daily basis and I think definitely this will set the precedent um, you know, uh, in terms of the, the Dallas eventualis principle and the application thereof as well as sentencing in accordance with it, um, I have no doubt that it will be a reported case, it already is uh, the bail application was also a reported case, and uh, yes, it will definitely be referred to in future um, and, and when when similar cases are argued before courts. What about cases of domestic abuse? Do you think they will be affected as well? Well, I think uh, very importantly on that point, Judge Masipa pointed out that this was not a case of domestic abuse. It was not a case of gender violence. It was a case of mistaken identity. Um, there was no evidence... Uh, placed before the court to indicate that there was an argument between the parties, uh, to indicate that there was any any violence prior to the incident which occurred and which led to a death, and, and that is very important. So I think on the point of gender-based violence, um, you know, it, it, it's not really on point because this was not a case of that, as I said, it's a, it was a case of mistaken identity. Karin, what's your view? Yes, I also think that um, it's definitely not going to have an impact on domestic abuse. It's not going to have an impact on um, violence against women or any of those type of matters because it, um, in, in actual fact, it, the appeals court also said there was no, um, there was no proof that this was a domestic fight or um, that, that, that there was anything wrong that evening between the two of them. Um, so I think it will definitely not go that far. But with regards to the other matters, I also believe that this case um, will be referred to again and again. Um, and I also think with regards to a practical view, um, it has, as already said in the beginning, the whole country are now experts on Dulles eventualis. I, I believe that this has really been a practical exercise for students as well to see how the law works every day. Um, and, and for that reason, I believe it will be referred to in in the, um, in their classes as well. What about the publicity of the case, with it being televised or alive on television? What impact will that have, maybe even with media reporting, when it comes to cases like this? Yes, well, that I is a that, possibility. Um, that, 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 yeah. Sorry, okay, let's start with you, Karen, and then you, Ulrich. So um, I think that indefinitely this will have an impact on future cases that um, the public would request it to be televised. 
Um, it also will have an influence on, on those cases where um, social media was um, much involved in the case um, with regards to Twitter being you know, active from the courtroom and so forth. I think it will definitely have an impact on that, but the special circumstances around this matter um, would, was definitely the reason why it was allowed and um, for in future, they will have to again consider whether the matter before them of such a uh, public um, importance or that the public is so interested in it um, with, to decide whether they want to allow it again. Ulrich? Well, I think it was groundbreaking. Obviously, it was the first um, trial which, would, which was broadcasted live uh, in South Africa. And for the first time, the South African public could see what the, the inside of a courtroom looked like, um, you know, what uh, cross-examination entails, what the role of a judge is. So that old cliche of justice should not only be seen uh, or should not only be done, it should be seen to be done, uh, rang very true. And it was, from that point of view, I think it was um, very valuable, you know, that it educated our society and uh, and people are, are definitely now more interested in in the judicial system and court cases. But also, I think it it um, you know restored some of the, the society and community's faith in the judicial system. I think um, you know I spoke to many international uh, uh, journalists and news agencies, and they were all impressed by how efficient our judicial system was and and how how the court case was run. So I think from that aspect, it played a vital role. Um, you know, with with um, future court cases and the possible broadcasting of it, I do think that there there are certain points which which just need to be considered. Um, you know, just to give an example, if someone was to testify in a court case and uh, you saw other witnesses testifying on television, you know, obviously he could try and uh, and adapt his testimony or, or or change his testimony to either be in accordance with other witnesses or against it, but. You know, that's just the challenge of both the defense and the state that they would have to be able to, to point out uh, when a person is not telling the truth while testifying. And other than that, I think it has been uh, very good for our judicial system. Karen, what is the possibility of the NPA appealing the sentence within the prescribed 14 days? Karen um, now indicated in the beginning, right before the sentencing, he said that if, he, if, if the sentence was going to be less than 10 years, they would really consider it. And I think um, they might still consider it. I, in actual fact, I believe that it's a very good possibility. Um, even if the result of that is just to confirm that Judge Masipa was correct, um, this, I believe they will, be, they will sort of feel better about the sentence if, if the, the appeals would also says that the reasons behind deviating from the minimum prescribed sentence um, was sufficient enough um, that a six-year sentence was laid up. It also will be, bring back some surety with regards to, you've said, whether this is a precedent for future murder cases, um, if a six-year sentence. It will also give some clarity with regards to that. So I think, in actual fact, the, um, the NPI would con- seriously consider appealing this matter. If they did, would the case be referred back to Judge Masipa or could we see a different court being appointed? Well, we could see a different court being appointed, but I believe that the appeals court will just make the, um, the final sentence if, if the matter is referred to them and, and if, if they do uh, decide that, the, um, that Judge Masipa was not correct, 
then they will just um, place the correct sentence on, on the accused. In closing, Ulrich, can you just comment on that question as well, the possibility of the NPA appealing the, the sentence and what this would mean? Yes, well, once again, I think that Karinal and his, his team would have to consider very carefully whether they are going to appeal it and they shouldn't be guided by public sentiment. The important questions which need to be asked is whether on, on the facts before the court, a different court would come to a different ruling. Um, if they do decide to to appeal the sentence, they would have to apply for leave to appeal for judge in front of Judge Masipa. She will then decide whether their argument is compelling enough uh, to grant them the leave to appeal. And if she says that it's not, and she denies them leave to appeal, then they will have to petition to the Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein, and then the Supreme Court of Appeal would have to decide whether um, there's any merit in their petition. Now, the important point which they would also need to consider is that should they reach the Supreme Court of Appeal and take the sentencing on appeal, the Supreme Court has the jurisdiction to hand down a lower sentence as well or a more lenient sentence as well. So, you know, uh, these are all considerations which they would have to take into account and um, certainly, you know, an an important decision which which they will have to make, in my opinion. I, I don't think that they will appeal. I think that um, if you had consideration to all of the factors and everything that was taken into account, uh, a different court will not come to a different conclusion. How much would this cost if they did appeal? Well, it, um, remember that it's, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's the NPA is a, is a state entity, so it won't cost uh, anything as such. They won't be appointing private attorneys uh, or advocates to bring the appeal, but um, I think one would have to look at the at the timelines and all the work that would have to go into it. You know, it's, um, they would have to bring the application before Judge Masipa, and then they would once again have to prepare uh, their application in front of the, the Supreme Court of Appeal, and you know, all of the, the the record once again will have to be typed up. It will have to be provided to the Supreme Court of Appeal. The heads of argument will be drafted, and uh, one day will be set down in which. Uh, the state and, and the defence will be given an opportunity to argue before the, the Supreme Court of Appeal. So certainly, from a cost point of view, uh, you know, one, one can't really make a comment on that. But from mm. the time and, and, and from a work perspective, a lot of work will have to go into it. Okay. That's uh, unfortunately all the time we have. So thank you very much to the both <clears> of you <throat> for talking to us here on African Dialogue. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. That's uh, Karin van Eck, who's a legal expert, as well as Ulrich Rue, defense and litigation lawyer for BDK Attorneys, talking to us there about the resentencing of South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius by High Court Judge Togozele Masipa. Remember, here on African Dialogue, we come to you Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. You can interact with us on Twitter. We are at Channel Africa. We're also on Facebook, and our email address is info at channelafrica.org. From me, Asanda Mazzaunyane, It's been a pleasure. Let's go to a song now, which is titled House of Pain by Sagila. Goodbye from me to you.
Good morning with your Economics News. I'm Wisani Matewula. The South African government is engaging the Zimbabwean government on the latest trade restrictions imposed by Zimbabwe, especially on imports from South Africa. South Africa's Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis has been engaging the Zimbabwean government bilaterally and through SADC structures to find an amicable solution. Zimbabwe recently introduced bans on requirements for import permits for a number of product, products such as cereals, cheese, canned fruits and vegetables, second-hand tires, iron and steel products, furniture and woven fabrics. Meanwhile, merchants in South African border town of Mosina have uh, complained that uh, their usual business with Zimbabweans has been drastically affected. The measures also led to a mass economic shutdown protest in Zimbabwe last year. Angola's liquefied natural gas export plant has relaunched a tender to sell its fourth cargo since the plant resumed operations last month after a two-year shutdown. Bids are due for Wednesday. The project, led by Chevron Corporation, initially issued the fourth tender last month only to be withdrawn. Angola's recently refurbished plant reopened last month after it was shut down in April 2014 to fix design flaws. Business activity in Egypt has shrunk for the ninth straight month in June on the back of further declines in output, new orders and employment. reports. Still uh, looking ahead on uh, some business news there, Uganda's National Bureau of Standards has warned traders to take caution when purchasing electrical products because some of them are falsified. The warning was sounded during an engagement with traders of electrical and electronic products held in Kampala recently. The products listed are said to pose a danger to people's lives because they lack quality and safety requirements. Now for your financial indicators. Uh, this morning, the dollar is ending the morning at 14.49 to the South African rent, 10.60. Botswana Pula, 9.96. Zambian Kwacha, it's also trading at 0.77 to the British pound and 0.90 against the euro. Commodities now, gold is at $1,367, platinum at $1,097 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil is at $46.50 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. I'm back in an hour's time with another update. In our sports update this hour, I'm Figure Lingwati. We're starting off with cycling news. History beckons for team dimension data following known as Kobega after their new acquisition, Mark Cavendish, who so far won three stages, one, three, and six of the 2016 Tour de France, and was also complimented by his fellow Englishman, Steve Cummings, when he took the seventh stage. In last year's event, Tim Kubega rose to podium twice, courtesy of Daniel Tekelheinemonot of Eritrea and Cummings, who won stage 6 and 14, respectively. Even though it's still early days to predict cycling legend Johnny Kuhn says he won't bet against Cavendish not finishing the race.
I would, I'd put money on that he won't even finish this year's race, and that would be on purpose, so that he doesn't spoil his preparation for the Rio Olympics on the Velodrome. So Cavendish will go probably as far as the Pyrenees, which is this weekend, and possibly take his uh, dimension data, Quebeca briefcase and suitcase, and fly back to where he lives in preparation for Rio. You know, the coverage that he's got from the two wins already must vindicate uh, the enormous sponsorship budget of probably in the region of 700 million rand or whatever that uh, the team enjoys. So uh, Cavendish... Definitely not a tour overall contender for the yellow jersey, but boy, has he been in sizzling form winning his 27th and 8th stage on the Tour de France. And not only Cavendish might leave the Tour de France halfway through, and Gunn says other medal hopefuls at the Rio Olympics will certainly follow suit. Yeah, I think the main overall contenders, guys like Nairo Quintana, Chris Froome, Valverde, the men who are actually going for the Maillot Jaune or the Yellow Jersey, they obviously have to ride it out. But their mission is that, and that's what they've prepared and based their whole year around. Uh, they'll be worrying about the Olympic road race, which is also of a completely different color because that's at least 254 kilometers long at Rio, while the uh, track riders, their maximum distance will be 50, 50 kilometers. So uh, you can just imagine coming off 3,600 kilometers of racing and trying to ride a one-kilometer event after that just uh, unheard of. It's like running comrades and now you've got to beat Hussein Bolt in the 100 meter sprint. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> different disciplines altogether. And South African national women's football side Banyana Banyana lost 1-0 to USA on Saturday at Soldier Field in an international friendly match. Head coach of Banyana Banyana, Vera Pau, told her players that she's proud of them despite the defeat to the Olympic and world champions. With South Africa ranked 52nd and many had expected a hiding from the U.S. who also occupy the top spot in the women's world rankings. Powell said that a lot of preparation was done before the clash with USA. And on to cricket news. An unbeaten century by Umpile Ramela put South Africa A in a commanding position before Zimbabwe A fought back by the close of day two of the first four-day test in Harare on Sunday. The Cape Cobras captain made 101 to take the tourists to 455 for the loss of six, declared, with the host then replying with 107 for the loss of one wicket in the 45 overs they faced in reply. Ramela's eighth career first-class turn was all about patience as it took nearly five and a half hours to amass. Vernon Philander's return in national colors failed to produce any wickets, but his nine overs came at a cost of just 15. The Proteas Seema is playing his first game for his country since sustaining an ankle injury in November. Zimbabwe's hero of the day was Brian Chari with his 71 not out as they closed 348 runs behind. And South African women's amateur golf features one of its most prestige tournaments this week when the Salam SA women's amateur is played at the Ibuze Links in Benoni, east of Johannesburg. Michael Flismas reports. The country's top women amateurs are all competing, starting with Sunday's 36-hole seeding round before the main match play tournament begins on Monday. The seeding round was won by KwaZulu-Natal's Michaela Fletcher with a score of four under par. Fletcher leant heavily on her experience playing college golf for the University of Memphis as she sounded an early warning to the rest of the field. 
playing college golf is just really you have to have really narrowed down focus and you have to be firing at the pins and you know pars they're good but pars just aren't good enough always so you know you you get on a par run but you need those birdies too and it's really taught me that you know you have to fire at pins South African number 1 Ivana Samu finished second in the seeding round and from Monday will be seeking to make amends for losing in the match play final of this event last year Michael Flissmus Ibotsi That's your sport news this hour